want to begin our time this morning reading through our passage. The Word of God reads, And those who seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Verse 62. And the high priest stood up and said, how do you no answer to make? What is it that these testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power And coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. And they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Church family, this is the word of the Lord. When I was doing my undergrad studies, I, just like every one of you else, had to take introduction to fine arts. How many of you have taken introduction to fine arts? It was my professor's job to get us to value and appreciate the arts. I won't lie, I don't remember much about that class. But one thing that I do remember is a term that he taught us. I think it was really a term he coined himself. He mentioned that we could be lethargic toward art. That we could be visually lethargic towards the things that we see, the things that we hear, the things that we feel. This idea communicated that we could see or hear something so often that over time we would begin to devalue its beauty. You think about the security guard who goes into an art museum and stands next to the million-dollar piece guarding it. Maybe that he walks in and the first time thinks, wow, that is a remarkable piece of art. That really captured what the artist was trying to do. But you could imagine over time, standing every day next to that piece of art, that that artwork might not be as glorious as it once was. Think about a sunrise or a sunset. How many times have you just pulled over on the side of the road driving to and from work 
just to behold the beauty of a sunrise or a sunset. Think about a new song that that you hear on the radio. You probably hear it and think, wow, that is a great song. But after the radio station plays it, every other song, it doesn't become as, as great as it once was. It's true, we can grow lethargic. We can grow indifferent or apathetic over time, over the most glorious of things. I don't, I don't think this is always intentional. I don't think that this is always our plan, but there is definitely a necessity to guard ourselves from a sense of indifference especially when it comes to the things of God. His character or being, his glory, his church, his word. As I consider the book of Matthew for us, I want to encourage us to be on guard against a growing sense of indifference or boredom to this book. You know, we've been, we've had 75 sermons over the book of Matthew. That's a lot. And it's easy for us to grow a sense of indifference to it. But it's a gospel that teaches us particular truths about the person of Jesus Christ. I say all this because in today's passage, there are some truths that are so common. There are some truths that Matthew has been repeating over and over and over again. And they're so common to the Christian faith. But my goal for today and my prayer for you this week has been that we would behold the fullness of the glory of Jesus today. That we don't hear these truths in a spirit of indifference because we've heard them for months or for years or for even decades. But that we would ask the Spirit to help us to behold them as if they were new. Today, my main point is very simple. I want us to see that Jesus is the perfect son of God who stands in the stead of sinners or stands in the way for sinners. Does that sound like a truth that you've heard before? I wonder if it still fills your heart with a deep sense of awe or a deep sense of wonder. My prayer is that you would leave here contemplating this truth, that Jesus is the perfect Son of God who stands on behalf of sinners. Let's look at our first verse today. Verse 57, then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. We're in the early morning of Good Friday. It's Passion Week. 
Last week we saw Jesus praying in the garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. He was confronted by a mom led by Judas. And our story ended with the arrest of Jesus. But we're told last week that this was done in accordance to the scriptures. Everything that we're reading right now is a part of God's plan. As we read this story, we need to be aware of the words of Paul in Ephesians 3 when he says that the eternal purposes of God are being revealed and fulfilled in these moments through the person of Jesus. This one verse tells us that they seized Jesus and led him to the high priest of Caiaphas. It's important to note that the Gospel of John in chapter 18 tells us that before Jesus goes to Caiaphas, they take him to the former high priest, Annas. Annas was the high priest the year before. He's Caiaphas' father-in-law. And Annas himself asked Jesus about his teachings in John 18. And Jesus responded to him, talking about how he openly taught among the people and that his words were not hidden from the religious leaders. Jesus was telling them all these things that you're asking me, all the things that we're going to see in today's passage, all of these things I've been teaching. I've been teaching them in the synagogue. I've been teaching in the temple. I've been teaching on the mountains. You've heard them. They've not been a secret to you. It's based on this response that Annas sends Jesus away and sends him to Caiaphas. And that's where our story is picking up. In verse 58, we're told that Jesus is brought to a courtyard. It's very likely that Annas and Caiaphas lived both around this square courtyard. And this is where Jesus was brought. The, the verse tells us that he's come before the Sanhedrin at this point. He's in front of the scribes and the elders, at least a quorum of them, at least a majority of them. And they're looking to do what they've been trying to do all throughout the, the book of Matthew. They're trying to get rid of Jesus. They're trying to stop the message, the kingdom. It's in this passage we see the religious leaders looking for evidence to find fault in Jesus to put him to death. But what the religious leaders did not understand, what they did not know, was the perfection of Jesus. Look with me at verse 58. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. And when the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. As the story unfolds, we're told Peter is present. He's following from a distance. 
And we'll talk a lot more about Peter next week. But in verse 59, the Sanhedrin, the, the high priest, begin to hear testimony against Jesus to find a claim to put him to death. But notice in verse 59, it says that there's false testimony. They began to listen to false testimony concerning Jesus. But for the leaders of this day, it did not matter. They, were not, they weren't concerned with what was true. They were only concerned with how they could put Jesus to death. Verse 60 tells us that they couldn't even find consistent false testimony against Jesus. Can you imagine being so perfect, so sinless, that you could never find any sort of false testimony against you? You know, if I sent a newspaper ad and just said, hey, do you know this person? Do you know Justin Flores? Do you have any false testimony against him? Do you have any, anything that might incriminate him? I'm sure that there would be many things that people could say. I'm not perfect. None of us are. But Jesus is. There was nothing that they could say about his character. There was nothing that they could say about his actions. This is why... Verse 60 is interesting. Matthew writes, at last, two came forward. This is important because in order to incriminate someone in Jewish law, there was the necessity for two witnesses. In verse 61, they say, this man said, this is the charge that they brought, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Mark's gospel gives us a little bit more clarity to what they said, specifically, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. If you have been following the Gospels, this is not what Jesus said. The false testimony included a false quotation of Jesus, but it also included a false interpretation on the words of Jesus. John 2 says that Jesus said, destroy the temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. Look at what, look at what John says. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus was not speaking about the physical temple. He was speaking about his body dying and being raised on the third day. But the chief priests asked Jesus to respond. Verse 63, look at how Jesus responds. Jesus remained silent. These few words have a grand significance in the story of the Bible. It should lead our minds to Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. 
The imagery here demonstrates how Jesus is being led to the cross. He's being led as the perfect lamb of God. Blameless and sinless. I hope you see the contrast here in this story. Do you see the contrast between the creator and his creatures? You have Peter's display of the fear of man. Peter is so scared in this story. He's so fearful of what man is going to do to him. He's chosen to fear man instead of fearing the one who has power over his soul. Do you see the sinfulness of man in the religious leaders? Do you see their self-righteousness? How they have elevated themselves over the law of God. Everything about this trial is contrary to the law of God. They should not have had the trial at nights. They should have had at least two consecutive days of trial. They should have interrogated these witnesses in private. But they had a self-righteousness over the word of God. Look at the falsehood pouring out from these men. They came to slander Jesus. Do you see the contrast? The sinfulness of man is high in view in this passage. But in this one simple line, the holiness and the perfection of Jesus is much more elevated. I don't think we consider often how other God is from us. How often do you consider that? That God is not like us. These verses were meant to consider the perfection of Jesus. This is one of those truths that we can grow lethargic over. That we can simply pass over the otherness of God, the perfection of God, the incomprehensible glory of God. You know, it's really difficult to comprehend how perfect he is. Because anytime we think that we reach in our minds the pinnacle of what we think perfection is, and we think, ah, that's, that's God. That's, that's what perfect is. No, no, no. We've already fallen vastly short. He's incomprehensible. His perfection is infinite. It's ever-ascending perfection. This is why the scriptures talk about God as, as, being full, as being fully and completely other. Listen to, what, listen to these verses, Jeremiah 10.6. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great. And you're great. And your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and all their kingdoms, there is none like you. Isaiah 40, 25, to whom then will, we, will you compare me? This is the Lord speaking of himself. That I should be like him, says the Holy One. 
Isaiah 44, 6 and 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first. I am the last. Besides me, there is no God who is like me. And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. This is who our God is. And this is who the fullness of God dwells in this Jesus that we're speaking of. This otherness, this holiness, this perfection, all of this dwells in Jesus. It was the incarnate son who would live a perfect life in obedience and submission, a life without sin that we would never be able to do. We would never be able to do that. It's hard enough just to go through one day. Imagine a lifetime. Do you see the contrast? That this one little line is placing behind the backdrop of the sinfulness of these men. Yet here stands the perfect Lamb of God. In accordance to the scriptures, he was the promised Messiah who would provide a perfect, sufficient sacrifice for the sins of his people. Not only do we see the perfection of Jesus, we see once again that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and the Son of Man. Look at verse 63 with me. And the high priest said, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. After this charge against Jesus concerning the temple, the chief priest invokes an oath. He's looking to receive a response from Jesus to the question on whether he's the Christ. In this passage, Caiaphas misunderstands the concept of the Messiah. And that's why Jesus gives him this response, you have said it so. It's almost as Jesus understands, he knows that what Caiaphas thinks is the Christ is completely wrong than what Jesus came to do. And so Jesus gives some clarifiers. Jesus is not only perfect, but he's the perfect son of God. He's the Christ. He's the person that the people of Israel have been waiting for this entire time. He would be the prophet that Deuteronomy 18.18 18 prophesies. I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in their mouth and he will speak of them all that I command him. He was going to be the faithful high priest that they were waiting for. 1 Samuel chapter 2. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. He's the righteous king that they've been waiting for. Psalm 72, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to your royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. 
Jesus clarifies and corrects Caiaphas' understanding of the Son of Man. I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. This term would have caused Caiaphas and the others there to have their ears perked up. They would have remembered our call to worship. They would have remembered Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came like came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before them. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all the people's nations and language should serve him. His kingdom is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The vision of Daniel promised that the Son of Man would act as a divine ruler, that he would be given power and authority over the kingdom of God. In this portion of Daniel, there's so much to impact and we don't have enough time. But what we see here is that the Son of Man rides on the clouds. You would constantly see this language attached to God. In the Psalms, it tells us that God makes the clouds his chariots. In this passage of Daniel, the Son of Man is worshipped and praised universally. In this passage, his dominion is eternal and everlasting. There's so much in the book of Daniel that affirms the deity of the Son of Man. And so when Jesus uses the term Son of Man, he's referencing his deity. He's referencing the fact that he is the Messiah, that he's the Christ, that he's the promised one, that he is the perfect son of God. But how does a high priest, how do the religious leaders of that day respond to the news that the Messiah is in their presence? Look at verse 65. And the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered Blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spat in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Ironically, many times when Jesus himself used the term son of man, it was always in connection to his rejection, his suffering, and his death. And that's what we see here. We have a picture of his suffering and his rejection. But this was part of the plan. This was a son of God who would stand in the way and in the place of sinners. It's here that we see the initial chastisement that Isaiah says would bring about our peace. How did those around react to this news? The high priests, they, they tore their robes. They tore their clothes as a sign of indignant anger. They spit it on him. They struck him. They mocked him. But isn't this a typical reaction to the news that Jesus is the Christ? If you're like me and you've lived in the Bible Belt 
the entire time you've, you've existed? This might seem, this might not seem like the common reaction. You might, you might encounter someone who, who truly does believe or at least knows about Jesus. The truth is, this is a more common reaction to the person of Christ. The Bible says that many will enter the wide gates and that only few will enter the narrow gates. Notice that when asked in verse 66, what is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Was Jesus deserving of death? Of course not. Jesus was innocent. He was without sin. He was perfect. The truth is, he did not deserve death. But you and I do. The Bible makes it clear that the wages of our sin is death. But God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. If you're hearing these truths for the first time, that Jesus is perfect, that he came to stand in the way of sinners, or whether, you're a, or whether you've been sitting in this church for several years, I'm praying that you have the same experience that Fallon had. That the message of the gospel hits you differently today. All of us are born in sin. And our sins make us guilty before a holy and perfect God. But Jesus came. God himself came to live a perfect life. To be a perfect sacrifice. To be the perfect substitute for your sins. To take upon the death that you and I deserve so that we might be reconciled and made right with God. The Bible says if you believe this by faith, you can be saved. That you no longer bear the sins that you've accumulated. How sinful are we? Think about the book of Leviticus. In the book of Leviticus, God writes about sins that we commit and how we're made unholy, how we're made unclean. And a lot of them are very practical, right? Like things that, that make sense, right? Stealing makes, makes you sinful. Like, yeah, that makes sense, right? But there's a portion in Leviticus where God makes it known to his people that you're guilty for the sins that you, you don't even know you committed. That you're guilty for unintentional sins. Those sins bring about the wages of death. But God has made a way. If you're here today, if you've not believed in Jesus Christ as the perfect substitute for your sins, and you've not believed in his death and his resurrection, today may be the day of salvation for you. If you would only believe and repent. But I wonder if you're already here and you've been a Christian. 
You've been a believer for a long time. I wonder if you've heard these truths today about who Jesus is. I wonder if you've read about them. I wonder if you've sung about them. And you've grown lethargic towards them. Maybe they've dulled a bit in your heart. That Jesus truly is this great. That he truly is this other. Maybe it's so much so that you're coming to church isn't dependent on these truths. Maybe you're coming because it's, it's dependent on whether, maybe you're coming to church and it's dependent on whether Saturday was busy or not. Or maybe, maybe this particular Sunday just happened to be convenient to come to church. Or maybe you came because you thought in some way it would garner favor from someone. Or from God himself. But you did not come because we come to serve a worthy and holy God. You know, church, I know that there can be seasons in our lives where we lose focus and sight on the glory of God. I know that there are seasons where it's difficult to open our Bibles it's difficult to come and to pray before our God and to seek his face. Sometimes we get discouraged because we can't see exactly what God is doing in our lives right now. But I want to encourage you in those seasons. I want to encourage you not to look to see what God has, is, is trying to do in your life in that moment. But set your gaze on what God has already done for you in Christ Jesus. Listen to how Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 1. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Church, if you find yourself in a season where the glory of God seems diminished, I want you to come and reflect on all that he has done in Christ Jesus. He has re reconciled you. He has saved you from a mind of hostility. He has made you holy and blameless before God. How do we respond this morning? Well, I believe, church, that we always need a reminder that as we encounter the word of God, there's a necessity to respond. Whether that's Monday morning when you're reading God's word, 
or Sunday morning when you're hearing the, God, the word of God preached, there are always, there's always a necessity to respond to God's word. I think there's a few for us today. The first today is for those who need to respond to the word that Jesus is the perfect son of God. That he has come to save you from your sins. The first response is for those who need to respond in worship and in praise and in adoration of that news. You know, this is why we sing a song following the sermon. So that us, so that as we, as the people of God, can respond to the preach word of God and can respond to the God that we just heard about in worship and in adoration. But maybe you've heard this message of salvation for the first time. That Jesus has come to die for your sins. Your response to God's word is different. Your response needs to be repentance and belief. And if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you as the people of God sing, let me invite you to come. Come when we're singing. I'll be at the front. Pastor John will be at the front. If you are here today and you need to respond by faith in Jesus Christ, come and just tell us, I need to know who Jesus is. We want to tell you. But lastly, maybe you're here and you're in a season where you've taken for granted, where you've been lethargic towards the truths of Jesus. You know, we prayed corporately that we would daily behold the Christ. Maybe your response is to continue that petition and to just join us in praising God through a prayer of praise. Asking him to help your heart see for anew the beauty of Christ. It's an ever-ascending perfection in the person of Jesus.